everything kind of fell together when I went on my first silent retreat because suddenly I was learning technology, you know, spiritual technology. And I was having religious experiences, you know, that were opening insights that were resonant with, you know, uh, a lot of what the Hasidic masters were describing. Check one, two, one, two. Is this thing working? You're listening to Rabbi Ariel Schollklapper, the wisdom and tools you need to thrive. Hi, everybody. This is Rav Ariel Schollklapper, and today I'm really excited to introduce to you Rabbi Sam Feinsmith, who I've been hearing a lot about for many years, and I think we're similarly to when we interviewed Yael Shai, it's like we've been orbiting each other for years and years, but and hearing about each other from other people, but not connecting directly, and so today is actually the first time that I'm able to connect with you directly, Sam, so I'm excited to hear more about your journey, and I'm sure others uh, are going to be also excited to hear about your genesis if they haven't heard it about it so far. So the way that we do this is I'm interviewing Jewish mindfulness teachers and mindfulness teachers of all sorts from all around the world who are sort of like top of the class, like the the most interesting and um, sought after teachers. And I'm giving you an opportunity to hear from them directly, but to hear about their journey and what led them to hear so that maybe you can find some inspiration and see yourself in them and see that it's not far from you. It's really just a a shift in one moment of your life and you can find yourself on the same path, but also to give you some kind of skill that we'll work on together that you can take away and start to begin your practice if you don't already have those skills built into your life. So to that end, we'll begin our practice today by having inviting Rabbi Feinsmith to teach us now with for about 10 to 15 minutes. We'll practice in, in quiet together. And after we're done with that time, we'll interview and talk about what his life has been like and why he feels like these practices are so important. I want to start us off with a prayer. My wish and prayer for our time today is that we can find some elements of peace and connection and that that leads us to feel our connectedness to all things Mm. and that separation will be apparent to us that it's not really there and that compassion and love are much more effective at helping us process this world so that we can feel that for ourselves and we can shine that light upon everything we touch and that the world and this universe will become a little bit more elevated on account of that awareness. If that resonates with you, you can say amen and I'll turn it over to Rabbi Sam Feinsmith to lead us today in our meditation. Mm. So thanks for being here. Yeah, a big amen to that prayer. Thanks, Ariel. I'm uh, really glad to be here. Um, just want to offer a very brief teaching, and then we'll we'll jump into practice. Um, 
You know, actually today is uh, Rosh Chodesh uh, Adar. Um, it's uh, the beginning of the, uh, the new month of Adar, a month when we actively try to cultivate joy in our lives. Uh, of course, we're approaching uh, Purim, which is a, a festival of joy. Um, but um, I just want to reflect for a moment on the, the word Rosh Chodesh, which is how we describe the beginning of the new month when uh, the new moon comes into um, visibility and we're able to actually declare the month holy and start the month um, and invite all of the blessings of the month ahead. And um, we may be uh, familiar with that, the way in which the word Rosh Chodesh is written. Actually, the word Chodesh uh, doesn't, doesn't have a vav in it. <laughs> And so if we're just reading uh, the word Rosh Chodesh without any vowels, it can also be read as Rosh Chadash, a new mind, right? Or new consciousness. Um, and so every time the moon turns uh, and we begin a new month, the uh, cyclicality of nature is inviting us to cultivate a new mind, a beginner's mind. Um, and I wanna uh, suggest that we can bring a beginner's mind to the question of what we have to offer. Uh, the divine and each other. Um, you know, traditionally, when someone wanted to give an offering, um, they would bring an animal to uh, the temple or before that to the tabernacle. Um, and I heard a beautiful teaching from one of my rabbis, Rabbi Zalman Chakter Shalomi of Blessed Memory, that, you know, um, back then that was the most valuable thing that you could possibly bring. But nowadays, right, we need to bring a, a kind of new orientation to the question of what we might offer because, you know, most of us don't own livestock. Um, and uh, what's most valuable to us today is our time and our attention, our time and our attention, right? Um, and that's the offering that we can bring um, as we, uh, set aside time for practice and really bring a kind of present moment uh, attention that uh, allows us to bring the fullness of our being moment by moment. But this week's Torah portion that's coming up, uh, which describes the offerings that were brought uh, toward the construction of the tabernacle, you know, describes how the people brought their offerings as an act of generosity. People are described as nedive lev, generous of heart. Um, and some people brought silver and some people brought gold and some people brought bronze and some people brought cloths or dyes or whatever the case may be. Right? But the point is that whether one brings a lot or a little, right, it needs to come from a generous heart. And so, yes, we give our time and our attention and practice, right? But one of the key pieces that's really important as we construct our inner tabernacle, our inner Mishkan, a place for the divine to take up residence in us and through us, right, is that not only that we give of our time and our attention, but that we bring our generosity of spirit, our generosity of heart moment by moment to whatever arises. And that doesn't need to be generosity that's as, you know, as beautiful and, and resplendent as gold. It can be as simple as bronze, you know. Um, just a little tiny bit of generosity can allow us to really create enough inner spaciousness so that we can begin to feel the loving divine presence become manifest in our lives here and now. So I want to invite us to settle in our seats, to adopt a posture that feels both grounded and rooted on the one hand, and also very 
uh, alert and dignified and erect on the other, kind of holding the balance here between being firmly planted on the earth and simultaneously rising up toward the heavens, positioning ourselves as the axis mundi, the ladder, the channel between heaven and earth. If you want, you can allow your eyes to close, but that's not absolutely necessary. Please do whatever feels regulating and supportive for you. If the eyes are open, they can be slightly downcast. And soft. Not trying to focus on any particular sight, but really allowing for a soft gaze. And then we check in with the body and allow the body to settle into a relaxed and alert posture. We can allow all of the weight, all of the weight from the very top of the head down through the face and the neck and the shoulders. All of that weight we've been holding up, we can just allow it to soften and relax and release down into the earth as we settle more deeply into our seat. The hands can rest in the lap, palms resting in one another or alternatively on our lap, face down, face up, whichever feels sustaining, nourishing, natural. We've already dedicated our time. We've brought our time as an offering because we're here. And now I wanna invite you to bring your attention to the present moment, here and now. And an easy way to do that is simply to allow your attention to alight on a physical sensation in the body. The body, the retaining wall of our sanctuary, of our mishkan, our tabernacle, is always here now, even though the mind may be somewhere off, planning for the future or ruminating upon the past fixating upon something so we can let go of the thinking mind for a time, not pushing it away, not trying to force it into submission, but just instead directing our attention down into the body. We might choose as an object for our attention the rising and falling of the breath wherever we feel it prominently, be it in the abdomen, the chest, or in the nostrils. Or if that doesn't feel regulating and safe for you, you can always focus on sounds as they arise and pass away. Or even the feeling of contact between your body and whatever you may be seated upon. And we observe moment by moment the flux, the fluidity, the change,
our consciousness gliding upon physical sensations, hovering above, knowing effortlessly, spontaneously. In this moment, my experience is like this. And we also bring our Nidivutlev, our generosity of heart. Inclining the mind, inclining the heart, inclining the body toward a kind of warmth, kindness, giving ourselves fully and unreservedly to each moment of experience. Gradually, by and by, feeling a loving quality of presence, deepening, resting, taking up residence within this inner sanctuary that we're constructing. Of course, at some point, your mind will wander off. You'll lose your focus. You'll forget your intention to stay present here and now. Here, too, we give the wandering mind some time. We give it some attention. And we give it some warmth, some generosity of heart. Recognizing that this too is part of the divine unfolding of being. This too can be a vehicle for awakening from our spiritual slumber. This too can be a place where heaven and earth kiss. perhaps even holding a distracting thought like a little baby with so much love and acceptance.
And when the time feels right, returning our attention to our intended anchor. Perhaps as we sit like this and cultivate this kind of generosity toward our own experience and offer the fullness of our hearts to whatever may arise, perhaps we might begin to feel and sense that somehow our heart 
is a vehicle for receiving and extending the infinite limitless love of the one heart of the world. We might finish this practice simply with that intention. See what we notice, feel what we feel. I invite everybody to put a smile on their face. It's uh, not mandatory, just a suggestion. And, uh, and see if you can feel the gratitude that wells up after a practice that's so delightful. And savor that feeling as well. It's kind of like locking in the goodness. Almost. I think that some of us want, I think I kind of like uh, a self hug is nice, some nice touch for yourself. Um, just give yourself a little bit of a, like a reward for having done this, if, especially if you haven't ever uh, sat that long before. For many of us, this is the first time. It's good to reward yourself when you do something good so and immediately so that you can then be incentivized to do it again in the future, especially when it's something that's good for you and you know it, it helps you and is good for you, but not necessarily so easy. So do that after the gym too. Put a smile on your face, give yourself a hug. <laughs> uh, this is kind of like going to the gym in some ways. It's a practice. It's um, something that's cultivated and it's made much easier as you see when you're led by somebody as skillful and as soulful as uh, Rabbi Feinsmith or Sam. Sam, can I just call you Sam? Is that okay? Or what do you Yeah, like? Yeah, please do. That would be wonderful. Thanks. Okay. I, thought, I never know what to do between colleagues. It's like, uh, I don't know. I used to call every rabbi rabbi, but now, you know, once, once you become a rabbi, it's like you never know what's right anymore. <laughs> yeah, well, we're all on this journey together, you know. Taking yeah. it away. So, yeah, well, that was lovely. Thank you. And um, I guess we can jump into the to the getting to know you bit because I've been waiting for that for for a while. And I guess I'm curious, just like where where are you from originally? Like, tell me the the background, that kind of a thing. Yeah, sure, sure. I'd be happy to tell you. Um, I was born in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my dad had a cabin up uh, near the Continental Divide. I've been Blackhawk, so I spent a lot of time in the mountains as a little kid. And then uh, when I was about five, uh, we moved to Israel, and I lived there for roughly 10 years, very formative years. Uh, I feel very blessed to have actually grown up there um, because it gave me a kind of fluency in Hebrew and um, because I also attended uh, yeshiva day schools really my whole life. Um, gave me access to the tradition 
um, you know, both in terms of skills and, and also the language. Uh, when I was um, uh, in eighth grade, about to start eighth grade, we moved back to the States, ended up in the tri-state area, uh, spent some time in uh, um, the Bronx and then out on Long Island. And eventually my parents settled in uh, New Jersey where I went to uh, the Frisch Yeshiva High School of North Jersey. Okay. And uh, eventually um, went to school at the joint program between the Jewish Theological Seminary and Columbia. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. The, did my ordination uh, ultimately at um, Yeshiva Chovevei Torah, um, the Open Orthodox Rabbinical School. Um, and uh, during that time also did a, a master's in Talmud and Rabbinics at JTS. Oh, wow. Theological Seminary. Um, Double duty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, an interesting journey, but, but uh, you know, eventually uh, while I was in rabbinical school, I got really interested in uh, Jewish meditation. Yeah. So tell place. me about that. What was the, like, how did that start for you? And like, where did, where did that come from? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I'd always been a spiritual seeker really from, as far back as I can remember being, you know, someone who thought and reflected upon life in a kind of deep existential way. Um, I remember that uh, I read uh, Herman Hesse's Siddhartha uh, when I was in high school and I thought, wow, you know, there's something deep here that I need to be exploring. And um, I also um, um, come from um, a particular lineage um, of musicians and chazanim cantors going back, you know, hundreds of years. And my dad was a, a Juilliard trained composer um, and wrote uh, symphonies with Jewish themes. And when I was a little kid, he uh, actually disappeared for a month into his study. I didn't see him. He didn't really eat or drink very much and didn't sleep. And uh, he was writing his Isaiah symphony and he had some sort of a mystical experience when he got to the third movement, which is based on um, Isaiah chapter six. Um, and uh, the way that he describes it basically is that, you know, he stopped composing and something was just coming through him. Um, and in those days, you know, people used to transcribe scores by hand, but this was before, you know, computers could do the work for you. He said, uh, you know, he wrote the whole movement without making a single erasure. It just came through him whole, you know. So I had that reference point as a kid, um, you know. Um, and um, I used to check out books on his shelf also about Native American spirituality. Um, he had a Lakota Sioux godfather named Henry Crow Dog. So kind of all of these streams were in my environment and he was also a chassid of Rabbi uh, Shlemy Torsky, um, uh, one of the great, you know, uh, scions of uh, one of the major Hasidic dynasties um, uh, that made its way to the States. So as a kid, we used to go pray there in Ishtibul, and uh, that was the first place where I ever had Cholent. <laughs> yeah. um, and I had, you know, direct contact with, with the Rebbe as a kid. So, you know, I was kind of swimming in this kind of spiritual soup as a kid and it kind of propelled me into seeking more when I was in high school. And then 
uh, in college, uh, my faith kind of got blown out of the water when I went to JTS and learned about the documentary hypothesis and oh, no. ancient, <laughs> ancient Eastern theology, you know, uh, ancient Near Eastern mythology rather. And, uh, <laughs> what? and uh, we didn't make it all up ourselves, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but I wanted, I wanted a system of meaning, you know, I was still, I was questing and hungry. So actually uh, uh, started studying Buddhism at Columbia University in the East Asian religions department uh, wow. with a strong emphasis on uh, Japanese Buddhism um, and Japanese religion as a whole. Um, and I remember sitting in my uh, intro to Buddhism, you know, survey course with like, you know, 250 kids at Columbia University and within a couple of days feeling right at home, you know, like this is, this is my place, you know, I yeah. can really can really land in this, you know, in a way that feels authentic and natural. And eventually that led me into study of uh, Kabbalah at the Jewish Theological Seminary with uh, Professor Shaul Magid, who was teaching there at the time. I had the blessing of studying with him as an undergrad and also as a graduate student. Um, and um, I had a, a roommate who was an ex-Yeshiva high school kid in college and he was into Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, and so he was meditating all the time. You know, he had his little altar with his water bowls and a picture of the Dalai Lama. Wow. And uh, I kind of thought it was exotic, you know, uh, and cool, but I never really, I never, never really meditated with him. But then, uh, you know, I got to rabbinical school and um, I had some rudimentary knowledge about some of these things and I was really hungry. Um, and my rabbinical school was great, fed my mind, you know, really beautifully and had a wonderful group of colleagues and the place was brand new, you know, and it was an exciting place to be part of, but there wasn't a lot of room for spiritual exploration. Um, and um, there was kind of uh, openness to it, but not a lot of time dedicated to it, not a lot of resources dedicated to it. And so we kind of had to figure it out on our own, you know, and uh, at the time, I was in rabbinical school with Rabbi David Ingber, who later went on to ordain with Rabbi Zalman Chakter Shalomi, and is now, you know, a wonderful um, renewal rabbi in New York City at Kihilat Romamu. And he started going up to Eilat Chaim at the time, which was a, you know, a Jewish uh, meditation and retreat center founded by one of my teachers, Rabbi Jeff, Jeff Roth, um, who I know you've also had a chance to study and practice with, Ariel. Yeah, and luckily, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started going up there and did my first silent retreat back in about like probably Oh four. Right um, the beginning then basically. Yeah. Uh, early on roughly. And, uh, you know, before that we were going to New York insight sessions at the Pure Land temple on 106th street and, uh, Riverside drive every Tuesday night, you know, um, and, uh, things really came together when I started going to Eilat Chaim because, you know, I'd been studying Hasidism and I knew that they were talking about religious experience, but I didn't know what the technology was to cultivate those experiences. And, you know, everything kind of fell together when I went on my first silent retreat because suddenly I was learning technology, you know, spiritual technology. And I was having religious experiences, you know, that were opening insights that were resonant with, you know, uh, a lot of what the Hasidic masters were describing. Um, but, you know, another thing that happened was really important for me in terms of really committing to a life of practice 
and not just dabbling, you know, and going on a retreat every once in a while. And that, that was when I was about uh, 27 or so. Um, I had suffered already for years, roughly 10 years from chronic sinus infections and um, they were getting worse and worse. And I woke up one morning um, and uh, I was in excruciating pain. Felt like someone was hitting me between the eyes with a sledgehammer. Like every, yeah, like every seven seconds, it just felt like boom, you know, boom. And it was so painful that even the sound of someone whispering sent shudders through my whole body, you know? So I went down to the New York eye and ear infirmary and they were like, we have to operate on you. Your sinuses are completely occluded. There's no drainage and you just have infection building up in there. Turned out after five operations, roughly that I had, you know, all of this infected bone and it could have gone into my brain. Um, and, you know, it was a long time until, I was fully recovered. Thank God I, I don't have any problems anymore. Um, but, uh, you know, this happened around the time I was starting to meditate a couple times a week and, you know, go on retreats. And I was sitting there one Sunday morning in my New York apartment and the pain was really unbearable. Um, and it had, it had been going on for, you know, a couple months really at that point. And even though I'd been meditating regularly and I'd feel relaxed afterwards, you know, I'd feel, I'd feel calm and relaxed and centered. You know, I didn't really understand that what I was really doing was developing an unconditionally friendly attitude and, and relationship with all of my experience. You know, in other words, I was, I was cutting off the habit and the cycle of repressing everything that felt scary or unpleasant or difficult. Right. So that skill then kind of naturally came to the surface that morning when I'm sitting there I'm in, and I'm in pain and, and I'm watching my breath, but the pain is just so excruciating. And it was like, you know, grabbing my attention and wouldn't let me stay with the breath. So for the first time in my life, you know, I'm like 27, the first time in my life, I turned toward pain and I have a little conversation with it. <laughs> And I said to it, I have every reason to believe you're going to stick around for a while, you know, so um, I'm going to stop resisting you. And instead, I want to invite you in to be my teacher. And when that happened, something amazing transpired, which was the pain didn't go away, but suddenly it was floating in the infinite space of pure consciousness. And it had so much wide berth, right, that it could just kind of pulse in and out. And instead of being this angular thing, right, an object that I was like resisting, right, it became a process, a fluid process, and it would grip me and it would let me go and it would grip me and it would let me go. And suddenly there wasn't any mental suffering, even though the physical discomfort continued, you know. So that was a huge watershed moment for me. It just blew my mind, you know. Yeah. That I could be in tremendous pain, the worst pain I've ever experienced in my whole life, but not suffer, you know? And from that point on, I was like, okay, I'm hooked, right? <laughs> I'm going to commit myself to practice wholeheartedly, you know, for the rest of my life. And this is going to become, you know, a cornerstone of, of, of you know, of um, my way of being in the world. Is what they say, um, pain is mandatory suffering is optional 
Yeah, I think that's the Dalai Lama, right? Pain, pain, pain is uh, inevitable. I think inevitable. he said, right? But suffering is an option. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I had I had an experience, you know, many experience like that. You know, you know, certainly, you know, as we all know on the spiritual path, you know, it's not growth isn't linear. It's not like from that point on, every time I had pain, you know, I was able to be free of suffering. But you know, you catch glimpses like that and they show you what's possible if you keep going and you develop yourself further, you know, and you cultivate more mindfulness and, and more generosity of heart toward all of your experience, you know, yeah, um, meet it with kind, loving curiosity instead of, you know, um, all of your preconceived notions about how it should be or how it will be or whatever the case may be. Yeah. I love that. Thanks for sharing the, the kind of full picture of the journey for I think it was great for me to hear that I think for others it'll be inspiring as well I guess I'm curious how you make sense of the 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 way the way that we've basically I mean I think I've talked about this with several people and the way that we've basically put this practice together is kind of like Buddhist technology bones structure meditation guidance and that kind of like packaging and Mm -hmm. then because we sit and we meditate quietly and we focus on our breath and that's or any object and return our focus and we use the understanding of pain as inevitable and suffering as the optional extra arrow that we add to it and Mm -hmm. we also talk about all the hindrances and the things that we understand that the way that the Buddhists have figured it out, they mapped it out, they did a really great job at figuring out like how you can get in, what gets in the way of attention, of being connected with this moment. Mm-hmm. And the way that you started this session was just like a masterful way of weaving Jewish consciousness, Jewish terminology, Jewish awareness of the cycle and the season, as a mindfulness practice and and kind of blending the two and i'm curious in the initial days when you were starting what was the like internally what was your dialogue because i know that for many of us it's like i don't know what do we i don't know (laughs) is this okay are we not okay like (laughs) like is this forbidden is it you know because sometimes you go into a buddhist place and they ask you like bow or whatever right there's all kinds of yeah, totally. And- totally. Yeah. And I've trained, you know, at Jewish retreat, retreat centers and, and Jewish lineages, as well as a variety of Buddhist and, and, uh, and also in some Vedanta practices and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's a question that's alive for me quite a bit. Um, even now, you know, um, look back when I was starting off, I was suffering and I just wanted whatever would work. Right. I, I was very utilitarian about it all. And, uh, you know, if the Hasidic tradition um, had offered me something that, you know, would have helped me to deal with my emotional and my mental suffering, as well as my physical suffering, you know, I would have said, great, you know. Uh, it happened to be that, that, um, that I found a lineage in the teachings of, you know, Jeff Roth and his, his partner, Joanna, and, you know, their channeling of Sylvia Burstein and Art Green and Zalman Schachter Shalomi, you know, that, 
that was in some ways syncretistic, right? Um, uh, which is to say kind of a melding, you know, of the neo-Hasidic practices with kind of Theravada Buddhist mindfulness in some ways. Reb Zalman was even more of a polyglot, right? I mean, he drew from all over the place Sufi practices. Um, people don't know this, but he actually was an ordained sheikh, um, uh, you know, in, in one of the Sufi lineages. So, you know, um, that's kind of been my orientation through the years. You know, what's going to work? I mean, we have these difficult human lives, you know, and even under the best circumstances, you know, even if we're privileged in many ways that I am personally, right, um, with all kinds of wonderful privileges, you know, life is still hard, <laughs> you know, and permanence is, is um, you know, uh, um, incontrovertible. And just when you think you have solid ground un underfoot, you know, everything changes. Um, there's this kind of all pervasive suffering that we all experience on a subtle chronic level, you know, which is what the Buddha called dukkha, you know, uh, which can be translated as suffering, but actually I think more accurately translates as, you know, a sense of things not being satisfactory, you know, even under the best of conditions. And, um, you know, we experience a lot of um, fear and, and defensiveness in, protecting this small sense of self that we have, you know? So um, the question is what's gonna help us work with all that and um, be happier, you know, more connected, more altruistic, more loving, you know, less reactive. Um, because, you know, we can't afford to continue living the way we've been living as a species. And uh, the kind of era of, you know, um, um, materialistic kind of individualistic living has run its course. And we see that it, you know, it doesn't work <laughs> in providing us with lasting happiness. In fact, anything that we try to get from out there, right, to fill a void in here isn't going to work, right? We need something that will help us to cultivate a sense of um, fullness, contentment, joy, you know, equanimity, connection that flows from an inner wellspring that isn't dependent on any external circumstances, right? So um, we have tools in, in Judaism to answer those questions, you know, and we have practices. But sometimes you read the Hasidic sources and you say, yes, but how, right? Because so many of the practices were transmitted from teacher to student you know, one-on-one. -on -one. And the vast majority of the teachers perished in the Holocaust. And if you want to study with a Hasidic master, of which there are some still left, you know, you kind of have to jump into um, an ultra-Orthodox way of living, you know. And personally, I didn't want to do that um, because I deeply believe in egalitarianism and um, ecumenicism, you know, ecum ecumenicism and, um, um, a kind of more uh, open membrane, you know, within the Jewish community that allows in um, wisdom teachings and tech spiritual technologies from other traditions and so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, the mindfulness tradition, 
not to paint it with a single brush, you know, it's obviously very diverse. There are, you know, hundreds of lineages and schools, but the one as transmitted by the Buddhist tradition provides us with the technology, you know? Um, and the other thing is, if I were to ask you right now, and I'm going to ask you right now, and the same goes for the people listening out there, right? What's the one question that Buddhism was developed to, to, to answer? There's really only one question, right, behind the founding of the tradition and, and all of the um, tools that were developed and teachings that were developed over the last 20, roughly 2,500 years, right? What's the answer to that question? Suffering. Right. right. How do you end human suffering? Right? Yeah. One question. What's the founding question behind the founding of Judaism? Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I'm stumped now. I feel like I yeah. mean, maybe connection to God, something. Yeah. Maybe, right? But if I ask 10 Jews, we'll get 20 answers, right? And, yeah. and I mean, you know, you could, for example, go to the story of Abraham, the founder, right? Uh, just as, you know, Siddhartha Gautama was the founder of Buddhism and wanted to end suffering. Um, and his story is worth, you know, knowing about. You can go learn about it anywhere, really, online or in countless books. But let's go to Abraham, right? So uh, we could say, you know, the founding question uh, behind Judaism, if we follow, for example, the Maimonidean orientation to Abraham, which is that Abraham looked closely you know, into the natural world and observed the beauty and grandeur and resplendence and order of nature and, and came to understand there must be a creator. A single then, creator. A single creator. And, and, uh, and, and then, you know, sought after that creator and developed a relationship with that creator. Right? Um, then you might say the founding question behind Judaism is how do you come into a relationship with uh, the force, the, the field, right? Whatever you want to, however you want to understand God, right? That brought the world into being and then align your way of living with the either directionality or will of that higher power. Okay. But if I ask, you know, 10 other Jews to answer that question, you know, especially if they're very learned Jews, we'll get, you know, 20 or 30 answers, right? So all, all this to say that, you know, if I want to uh, deal with uprooting the roots of suffering from my mind, right? I'm going to go to the Buddhists because that's the only question they've been deeply contemplating and reflecting upon and answering for the last 2,500 years. It's specialists. Right? They're specialists in that question, right? If I want to know how to connect with the creator of the world, right? Or, I might say the creative force that brought the world into being and animates the world moment by moment by moment, right? Because I don't believe in a, a, a God as like a sky God, you know, some being out there in the sky who's watching us and, you know, kind of, you know, magically brings the world into being. But I do believe in a ground of being, you know, that is full of, of love and potential and, and infinite, you know, possibility out of which everything arises into which everything then subsides kind of like waves arising out of the ocean and resolving into the ocean, you know? So, you know, I'll ask the Hasidic masters because that's their area of specialization and expertise, you know? And, um, <clears throat> if you want to know how to get to the frame of mind that the Hasidic masters were operating in without going into a black hat lifestyle, which is like a super, like extra ultra orthodox lifestyle. 
then it seems like the Buddhist technologies also not just end the suffering, but also allow for a, a type of mystical lens and experience that unlocks that kind of oneness that we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, it's exactly. It's multi-purpose, right. right? We might have come to it because of suffering, right? And then discovered along the way. Wait a second, this is much more than just the suffering. This also also opens up the whole world in terms of my ability to to see my interconnectedness. Yes, and, and exactly. Buddhists might not call that divine. But if you're coming from a Jewish frame and you've been looking for that, you know, then you're all of a sudden you're like, why aren't we all doing this? You know, why right, are, right. Like, how is this not in every single place? Like, why? Is, how is this not obvious? Like, like yeah. what are we doing with all this other stuff? You know, that's not necessarily accomplishing that end. Yeah. Yeah. Now, what, what I do want to add, though, is that, you know, look. Every contemplative tradition the world over is going to say, you need to begin by working with the mind, right? And you need to get concentrated. Because if the mind is flitting around hither and yon, chasing after this earthly desire or that, you know, particular uh, object that it wants, you know, or fantasizing about this or pushing that away, you know, you're not actually going to be able to engage in any kind of real deep introspection and see beyond the veils right? yeah. to the... Um, nature of reality itself. Um, and so, you know, if you adopt the Buddhist path of cultivating concentration, right, um, and you develop that kind of deep concentration, and then you study Hasidic sources, and they talk about becoming concentrated in prayer, you realize they were getting as concentrated, the Hasidic masters were getting as concentrated, and developing um, states of deep meditative absorption, Right. I would even say, for those who are familiar with them, jhana states, right, as described in classical Buddhism, through their prayer practice. Right. I think there's a question study that talks about the theta waves being similar. It, yeah. Within davening communities, <laughs> prayer communities, Jewish prayer communities versus meditators for yeah. serious practice. Yeah, exactly. And then once the once the mind becomes that sharp and vivid and um, buoyant and uh, expansive and focused and penetrating, right? The question then becomes, okay, how do you then use the, the instrument of the mind, right? So the Hasidic masters use it to uncover the essential unity and divinity of all creation. And the Buddhists use it to um, deconstruct uh, um, the self, right? in order to reveal the self as, as basically just a, an aggregate of impermanent phenomena that come together and then dissolve and come together and then dissolve and come together and then dissolve, right? With the understanding that if one could see that deeply, one would be liberated from any self-clinging and there, thereby they would be liberated from any suffering, right? So what I, what I want to suggest is that, you know, at some point in our development and our practice, we have to kind of decide, you know, where are we going to, if we can develop a kind of depth of concentration and stability of mind, right? Where are we going to then uh, shine the radiant mind, you know, toward or into, you know, into what project, into what end? Um, yes, and there, yes, there, there will be overlap, right? Yeah. For sure, you know, but um, we can only spend so much time in our lives in practice, right? 
And if we really want to go deep, at some point we have to, I think, commit to a particular path, right? Uh, it's not that we can't be informed by another path, right? But we, we're going to want to go really, really deep in a single path and kind of take it as far as we can toward its conclusion, as it were. Yeah, so what's your, I guess, to that end, what's your wish for, like, you, you've spent a significant amount of time practicing and thinking about and developing and, and also now leading others in developing their own practice. And I'm curious what your kind of, maybe it's initial at this point, you can change it, but what's your vision of like what you want or hope for to come from this, from all of this work that you, and dedication and practice? Yeah. Yeah, if you could put it in prayer form if you really wanted to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, ultimately, my prayer is that um, we recognize that the roots of our suffering collectively, right, um, are in our own being. Right. Um, not somewhere out there. In other words, instead of trying to rearrange the deck chairs, you know, to, uh, for example, end climate change, right? We need to work directly with our own greed. Um, you know, instead of uh, trying to change systems and structures uh, of oppression that perpetuate racism and institutionalize it, you know, we need to be working with our own unconscious bias first. Because otherwise we're just gonna keep projecting the unresolved egoic tendencies of our own heart and mind out as oppressive systems and structures. Right? It's not that we don't need to dismantle systems and structures of oppression or address policy that, you know, can um, mitigate climate change. It's that even if we address things at the policy level, if we haven't done as a species, the internal work of growing in consciousness, and we'll just keep recreating systems that are oppressive and motivated by greed and um, bias and aversion and ignorance. Um, so it's my sincere hope that we can um, marshal the divine presence, which is our, our faculty of pure consciousness, to um, become intimately familiar with those kind of inner entanglements that we then project outward as oppressive systems and ways of being in the world. So that ultimately we can once and for all as a species evolve to the next phase um, and um, and come into right relationship with each other and with our planet and seed to our children and our grandchildren and to all generations to come, a, a world that is compassionate, loving, kind, and wise. And that's what I really hope we can accomplish through practice and through this consciousness movement that's burgeoning and that we as Jews can contribute to in a significant way because we have the, the wisdom and the technology to help us move in that direction. Amen. Thank you. Um, so 
if people want to be able to connect with you to continue learning with you, um, I'm going to put a link down in the comments so you don't have to write it down real quick. Um, not in the comments, in the description as well. But uh, what's the best way to, to do that to continue learning with you? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm a program director at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Um, we have a bunch of offerings for the community, many of which are free of charge. So you can check out our website, www.jewishspirituality.org. We run a daily live uh, meditation group facilitated by um, our core faculty and uh, um, an expanded roster of uh, program alumni, uh, alumni of our long-term cohort programs and other friends of the Institute. Um, and uh, that runs every, uh, again, every day, Monday through Friday from 1230 to 115 p.m. Eastern time. That's 930 to 10.15 a.m. Pacific time. Um, and you can find information about that if you click on the getting started, uh, get started tab, rather. Uh, there's also a free podcast about contemplative prayer by uh, run by my uh, colleague and friend and teacher, Rabbi Jonathan Slater. There's also a live weekly yoga studio that's free of charge every Monday with Cantor Lizzie Shamash, who's just a phenomenal uh, teacher practitioner of, of Jewish yoga. Uh, there's a bunch of online courses if you want to get started in Jewish meditation. There's a course called The Gift of Awareness, very affordable. We do offer a student uh, discount and financial aid. Uh, that's an eight-week online self-paced course in the Fundamentals of Jewish Mindfulness Meditation. Um, there are courses uh, related to character refinement and prayer. And also we run long-term cohorts and we'll be accepting applications for our clergy leadership program actually this coming uh, spring, we're hoping to open the application process by March 1. Um, and uh, uh, stay tuned for that. That'll be up on our website and we'll also be you know, getting it out broadly. And that's an 18 month cohort program with four or five day retreats, uh, God willing, COVID permitting, and uh, you know, high touch uh, interim support. Um, and so if uh, you're listening to this in the podcast, <laughs> that deadline may have already passed, but you probably could still apply. Yeah, applications will be open through June 15th, actually. And if you're listening to this in the podcast a year from now, there will probably be another cohort. So just yeah, we we, the, we launch a cohort every two years, exactly. Yeah, get yourself on the list if you're not if you're in the exactly list. be in touch with me. I'm I'm Sam at JewishSpirituality.org, and uh, I'll be happy to add you to a master list of people who are interested in in that program. <laughs> Wow. So thanks so much. I've been, I've really enjoyed this time getting to know you and uh, I hope that everybody can have that extra boost to their practice and be encouraged to just go back and rewind and re-listen to the beginning of this and sit for those 10 minutes and practice. You can do that over and over until it becomes a skill that follows you into your life. And uh, I'm really grateful. So thanks so much. Thanks, Ravariel. I'm so glad uh, to have this opportunity and just sending you and everyone who's listening blessings for good health and all good things. Amen. Thank you. Take good care. To stay updated on new episodes, subscribe on iTunes or follow on Facebook.com slash Rabbi Shulk. That's Rabbi Shulk, R-A-B-B-I-S-H-O-L-K. Hey, so if you're really serious about this, come on down to RobRiel.com 
That's www.raviel.com. Take our free trial, do the self-learn path, or try group coaching, or even come apply to work with me one-on-one. And you'll give yourself the accountability and the support and the step-by-step path that you need to feel calmer, more mindful, and happier with your life. So come on down, www.raviel.com. See you there.